Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Days before the deadly bombings in Brussels, Belgian authorities carried out raids that killed or captured several of Europe's most wanted terrorists. At the same time, Institute Fromer Wexler Fellow Matthew Levitt was in Brussels, meeting with Belgian counterterrorism officials from neighborhood cops to national intelligence leaders. What he found was a city where a terrorist safe haven has arisen side by side with the gleaming capital of modern Europe. On one picturesque square in the Brussels neighborhood of Molenbeek, Matt saw on one corner the mayor's ornate office, and on the opposite corner, the family home of accused Paris co-conspirator Salah Abdesalam. Window to window, there is nothing but air between the municipality and the home of the man who was most wanted in Europe, uh, but there's a, a world of difference uh, between them. Even if redoubled counterterrorism programs succeed in disrupting the next plots, governments across Europe will face a generational challenge of integration and deghettoization to drain the swamp of potential jihadist recruits. Today, Matt reports on what he found in Brussels and takes us inside the European effort to combat foreign fighters and homegrown terrorism networks. After this. This is Laurie Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. And now here is Matthew Levitt, director of the Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence, speaking in Washington on March 25th, 2016. Last week, I, as it happens, uh, spent the week in Belgium meeting with Belgian intelligence and counterterrorism officials. As it happens, I was sitting with uh, one of the chief Belgian counterterrorism officials on Tuesday as they were about to raid a safe house in the neighborhood of Forest. Uh, one person was killed in that raid. They did not find their primary target, Salah Abdeslam, but they did find his fingerprints. And if three days later, just after I had left, uh, they found him in the neighborhood in which he grew up in Molenbeek, just around the corner from the family home. Let me just paint a picture for you. After meeting with the uh, mayor and the police chiefs and the counter-radicalization cell and the civilian prevention officials in uh, Molenbeek Municipal City Hall, I went with several of them for a walk around the neighborhood, which is not a denied space by any uh, uh, measure. Uh, it's a beautiful part of town. It's not like some of the uh, neighborhoods, the banlieue uh, in the suburbs of Paris. It's it's 15-minute walk from the, the EU city center, three or four metro stops away, including the one that was just targeted. Uh, and as we circled around back to the uh, municipal building, uh, we got to a picturesque, typical European cobblestone um, courtyard. On one side of that courtyard is the municipal building, and on the other side of the courtyard, catty corner to it, with no th- nothing but air between them, is the Abdeslam family home. Window to window, there is nothing but air between the municipality and the home of the man, the family who was of the man who was most wanted in Europe. Uh, but there's a, a world of difference uh, between them. So I think there are three critical points that I took away uh, from my time there. And now looking back on it after the Brussels bombings on Tuesday that I want to share with you. The first is that authorities were absolutely aware of the threat, and they were doing all that they could. The problem is that Europe in general, 
and the Belgians in particular, have come late to this problem set. And this problem set is twofold. One is a traditional counterterrorism problem set, and the other, in some ways much more complicated, is one of social integration, social cohesion, integrating immigrant communities into society. When you have children in a neighborhood like Molenbeek who drop out of school at 11 or 12 and are, uh, you know, heads of gangs by the time they're 18 and are not particularly religious at all but are then drawn to an ideology that fills up many of the things they're missing in terms of family ties, mostly from broken homes, in terms of uh, empowerment and belonging and having a purpose. Mind you, most of them aren't becoming particularly religious, but this is filling in gaps for them that have a lot less to do with traditional counterterrorism. Elsewhere in Europe, we certainly still see cases where radical Islam is the first piece of the component, but not here. From the counterterrorism perspective, there's a long way to go. And I'll give you just a few examples. Some of the most obvious are the fact that Salah Abdeslam was able to hide since the November attacks in Paris until this past Friday without being captured. Right? Many of the European Union member states are not yet electronically connected to the databases that Europol, to its credit, has already put in place at the border crossings. Europol has verified a minimum of 5,000 foreign terrorist fighters from the European Union who have gone to fight in Syria and Iraq. Some of them won't come back. Some of them will die there. Some of them have already come back. That 5,000 number, though, is not just from reporting from EU member states. In fact, much of it is not. According to the EU counterterrorism coordinator, who I met with last week, according to his latest report, the reporting from EU member states adds up to only a little over 2,700 verified foreign fighters, even though we know, and Europol has reported, at least 5,000. What's more disturbing still is that of the European Union member state reporting that has come in, over 90% of it is from only five members. There is critical need to fully integrate intelligence, information sharing, getting information where it needs to be, there's a long way to go there. At least as important is going to be dealing with the social integration piece in places like Molenbeek. As one official there put it to me, you are dealing with people who are going from zero to hero. People for whom this Islamic State ideology, the idea of getting in at the ground level and helping to create a caliphate, following in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad and his original followers, is extremely empowering. Almost every single one of the people that have carried out the recent set of attacks over the last 15 months has been someone that was on police radar for their criminal activity, without any knowledge whatsoever that they had been terrorists, and that's not the police fault. And the reason I say that is because in almost every case, the speed of radicalization has been at hyperspeed. Very, very quickly, people being drawn in to radical ideology. You can't live within this larger European community. You're not really part of Europe. You're part of the Ummah, the Muslim nation. You need to be doing things on behalf of the Islamic State. Very, very fast. It's important to recognize, finally, that while the Brussels attack was a wake-up for much of the world, uh, it really wasn't the aha moment for Europe. 
nor for that matter were the attacks in Paris in November. It might have been for the public, but not for counterterrorism officials, not for intelligence officials. That aha moment came 15 months earlier, in January 2015, not with the Charlie Hebdo attacks, which I would still consider both the Kouachi brothers affiliated, claimed by AQAP, and Ahmed Koulibaly self-identifying with the Islamic State, these terrorist frenemies whose groups were fighting one another tooth and nail in Syria and Iraq, engaging in attacks together in Paris. Those were still of the old-school lone offender type. There was no evidence they were being foreign-directed by either group. The key aha moment came a week later in Belgium, in Ververes, where intelligence led people to a safe house based on intercepted communications, uh, a, a key Belgian uh, Islamic State terrorist based in a safe house in Athens was on his cell phone. They raided this place. Two Belgian uh, officers were killed. And what they found there was tremendously disturbing. Precursor chemicals to, K to make TATP explosives of the type that were used in Belgium this week. Uh, a large cache of weapons and ammunition, sophisticated communications gear, uh, a, a significant amount of cash, uh, and indicating to them as they continued to investigate, perhaps most disturbingly, not only that this was a foreign-directed plot, and then over the course of 2015 we had several more foreign-directed plots, including, of course, November in Paris, but also the cross-jurisdictional nature of this plot. There in Belgium, they're being overseen by someone on a cell phone in Greece. Other pieces of the investigation were going on in Germany, in France, and in the Netherlands. A U.S. intelligence report that has since been made public presciently noted at the time that this, the cross-jurisdictional nature of these plots, is what is going to make them most difficult for the international community in general and for Europe in particular, given the fact that its communications and intelligence and information sharing are still very much a work in progress. This is what will make stopping the next attack all that much more difficult. We have two clear baskets of tasks ahead of us. The one is obviously counterterrorism, and it's what most people are going to be focused on right now. Identify the accomplices, map out the network, arrest as many people as possible who are planning attacks against the West today. And you have heard yesterday, and I'm sure there'll be more today, of further raids in Belgium, in France, etc. That shouldn't surprise, and that's appropriate. But in many ways, the larger lift, the 20-year plan, the thing that is going to be a lot harder to do is integrating communities that have become ghettoized and are not at all integrated. And I'll leave you with just one strange and disturbing statistic. I asked local police officers in Brussels if they were able to uh, work with uh, local imams in Brussels when they found people who were drifting off either into criminality or from criminality into radical ideologies uh, condoning and justifying violent extremism, and they said largely not, and for two reasons. One, there's not a religious but a cultural taboo that makes it very hard for them to reach out to many elements of the community. There are lots of efforts to do this, and some of the most successful, for example, have been to reach out to mothers, but they have a real problem getting past the social taboos. But in terms of the imams themselves, there are, they told me, approximately 114 imams in Brussels. Most of these young youth that are being radicalized don't speak Arabic. And most of those imams don't speak 
any of the three local languages, in particular French or Dutch. And the number they gave me, which is frankly mind-boggling, is, is that of the 114 imams in Brussels, a total of eight speak local languages. So there's clearly a tremendous amount of work yet to be done. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.